0: You're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-supported show, and this episode is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I like to recommend to my friends for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. In addition to their curation of thousands of ethically made and earth-minded products, they just published some really helpful gift guides on their website, and I'm especially appreciating the one titled Eco-Friendly Gifts Under 100. Which features things including these triangular reclaimed wood serving boards, jewelry made out of recycled metals, hand woven colorful scarves made using heritage techniques by artisans in Kulu, India, and more. As I mentioned before, May Trade offsets emissions from all of their shipping, and they also support localized regenerative textile systems with every purchase. So if you plan to buy handcrafted and responsibly made goods for yourself or for loved ones this season, I I highly recommend checking out Made Trade and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash greendreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash greendreamer. Onwards, if you're relatively new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. If you're not sure where to begin, we do have an Embark newsletter just for you that will basically recommend 30 of our top episodes to you across a wide range of topics, and these will be sent to you three days a week for 10 weeks straight. If you'd like to opt in, you can head to greendreamer.com Embark. Since our recent replay of our episode on the psychology of materialism with Dr. Tim kasser with so well received, especially during this time when the holiday season is so focused on driving consumerism within this dominant culture. For our last in-between season replay episode, um, before the launch of our winter season of the show, which begins on Monday, mark your calendar, we decided to bring back our conversation with Robert Frank, who is the professor of management and economics at Cornell University and the author of many books, including Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure. To work. We explore topics very pertinent to this time, such as what what the pandemic reveals about our economic injustices, why it's important to distinguish between absolute and relative poverty, as well as absolute and relative wealth, how we can leverage the power of peer pressure, which kind of has a negative connotation when it's normally used, but how we can leverage that in our favor to get the positive changes that we wish to create in our society and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in.
1: I think the very first time I had any clear notion of these ideas was when I was renovating a house in Washington, D.C. The workmen who would come would arrive in the morning, each of them behind the wheel of a brand new van. The vans were plushly carpeted, walls, floors, and ceilings. They had state-of-the-art sound systems. When they would set up work at the work site, though, they would... When they had to work on high places, they would just stack sheetrock buckets, one on top of another, and then put a plank between the the two stacks and climb up and and work that way. The, The stacks were rickety. They would collapse from time to time in a heap. People didn't get seriously injured any of those times, but they could have. And... I asked them, why didn't they buy some scaffolding to work on those high places? And and the response was, well, it's too expensive and it takes too long to move. It was clear that if they each had a van that was only two or three years old, they would have had more than enough money to to erect scaffolding for those jobs. And and that probably would have been satisfactory if they each did that. But for one of them to have an older van and the other ones to have a new one, that wasn't okay. So that, that was the the first time I actually tried to formulate what it was that drove spending patterns, it was that what we feel we need depends very strongly on what others around us have. Uh, that's, that's actually an old idea, and it's come up at various times in, in the history of the social scientists' attempts to, to explain behavior. But it, it, it never lasts long and, and quickly It gets abandoned each time, but but it's not really possible for us to understand what's going on without reference to it.
0: So, you're an economic professor and the author of many, many books and articles on the interweb, many of which do center around the topic of social inequity. And that's something that's not only important to address directly, but also something that ties into other things like environmental sustainability and climate change that we're going to go into a bit later. But can you first give us a brief overview of where we've been headed in terms of our wealth gap in the United States and perhaps the primary drivers? we should know behind that.
1: Yeah, there's a very interesting change in pattern. What we saw in the two or three decades after World War II, roughly up until about 1970, was that incomes grew at about the same rate for everybody, rich, middle, and and poor alike. A little bit under 3% a year was the the growth rate of income. That, That was a high growth rate, actually. And the gap between rich and poor was, if anything, shrinking during that time. After 1970, the pattern completely reversed. The income gains that we've seen since then have been almost exclusively at the top of the income ladder. And the higher up we go, the bigger the gains. So the, the only real gains have been in the top fifth of the income distribution. If you look within that group, most of the gains in it have come in the top 5%. In the top 5%, the biggest gains have come in the top 1%. If you slice that group up the top one-tenth of one percent has gotten the lion's share of those gains and so on all the way up as far as we can measure that's a very very destructive pattern i think not just because it seems unfair and it's hard to get agreement on what constitutes fairness but mainly because it leads to colossal waste in our spending patterns that's, I think, the real cost of the widening inequality that we've seen.
0: Mm. Are we able to pinpoint exactly what happened in 1970 or around then that led this trend to shift?
1: There are many things that happened. Economists are still arguing about exactly what narrative they want to embrace. But <laughs> we've seen this sort of change happen before. My, my friend and colleague Philip Cook and I published a book in 1995 entitled The Winner-Take-All Society. The thesis we developed there was that we've seen waves at various times in the past where it suddenly became possible for the people who were the best at whatever it was they did to extend their reach. So you can think back to the 19th century. uh, Piano manufacturing was a, a quintessentially local enterprise at that time. And the reason was that It was so expensive to ship pianos over any distance that you had to build them fairly close to where people bought them or else they'd be prohibitively expensive. But then railroads opened up, canals opened up, bridges made places accessible that weren't previously, and then roadways and so on. Every time there was an opening that made transportation costs fall, there was a consolidation in the piano manufacturing industry, the the best Manufacturers in an area consolidated their their hold on a, an ever wider swath of markets, and now really they're only uh, uh, with with shipping containers and the like. They're really only a handful of piano producers worldwide, and we've seen a variant of that phenomenon in sector after sector. The main thing that happened in the in the 1960s and into the 70s was that communication costs fell dramatically, and other transport costs fell dramatically. And so we've seen the best players in every domain able to extend their reach more and more. I mean, in in the old days, you had to listen to music in person. Now we listen to music in recorded form. Once there was a brisk market for thousands of musicians in each category. Now there's a high-paying market only for a few.
0: So with that, today, I believe the richest three people in the United States own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the American population combined. And almost 40% of American adults wouldn't be able to cover a $400 emergency with cash, savings, or a credit card charge that they could quickly pay off, according to a Federal Reserve survey. We're currently in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic as we speak, and certainly there's a lot of It's talk. remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about how the pandemic has affected our economy. Politicians are talking about ways to save the economy with government stimulus packages. What are you seeing so far in terms of how the pandemic has amplified or impacted our wealth gap, as well as the different ways people have had to respond to the crisis based on where they are in the economic ladder and role within our society?
1: The pandemic is, of course, the biggest threat we face at the moment we're facing a threat that's perhaps even bigger in the long term, which is the accelerating warming crisis. But the immediate threat is to get through the pandemic. And and people are are incredibly differently positioned in terms of their ability to weather the steps that we need to take. I think the pandemic experts, the epidemiologists, are in firm agreement that given where we are in the process now, the imperative step is maximum social distancing, social isolation, sheltering in place. I'm lucky. I'm a professor. My salary hasn't changed as a result of this. I'll be giving Zoom lectures to students over the coming months, my paycheck goes on. The people who are working in so-called non-essential businesses, many of them have already lost their jobs, lost their paychecks. So the essential short run step is for the rest of us to pitch in, and that means government, and get money into their hands so that they can continue their lives with as minimal disruption as we can manage. Once that's done, I think we'll be in a deep hole. We will have an unemployment rate at a level we won't have seen since the Great Depression, maybe even a higher one than we saw then. And it was upwards of a quarter of the population that was out of work during the Great Depression. We will need heroic measures to put people back to work. And it's at that point when I think we'll face a big opportunity. Winston Churchill once said, uh, never put a good crisis to waste. We know we need to make policy changes, we know we need to take massive investments in renewable energy, but without some sort of external prod, it's very difficult to take big steps like that. But I think the need to make massive public investment anyway, when the pandemic ends to get the economy back on its feet will be just the spur we'll need to get the the trillion plus dollars a year in green infrastructure investment underway. Money's available now. It's if we can borrow at not only zero interest rates, in real terms, negative interest rates. And so it's exactly the moment when we'll be able to seize the opportunity to do the things that, for lack of adequate foresight, we weren't doing already. I
0: think sometimes times of crisis also reveal whose roles are truly non-negotiable in keeping our society going and keeping people even just alive. So farm workers, the food deliverers, street cleaners, janitors, garbage truck operators, definitely our healthcare workers. But these are also frontline people, many minimum wage workers who don't have as much of that opportunity to come out on top, as we discussed earlier. What do you think this should tell us about our economic system today and what it values or undervalues?
1: You know, I think the health arena is really a prime area to focus on here. One of my own sons is an EMT. He is going to be in the front lines as this unfolds. We haven't been hit nearly as hard as New York City has yet, but that's just a matter of time. And and the people who are working to save lives in this industry are paid not nearly enough, many of them. They're ill-equipped. We have a private business model of four profit business model running our healthcare system and it's not in in the interests of that business model to build in surge capacity capacity that's not needed most of the time it's in society's interest obviously to have surge capacity but that's the kind of step that we can take collectively that we can't rely on the profit motive to to see taken automatically by self-interested private actors so i think The impassioned debate about whether Medicare for all was a wise policy move, I think, would look very different if it were being held today rather than two months ago. The idea that people get their health insurance as part of their terms of employment is an idea that's unique to this country. It emerged quite by accident. It was during a wage freeze during World War II that companies discovered that they could recruit scarce workers by offering health insurance that enabled them to, to find a workaround for the wage freeze. Uh, and, and by the time most workers had employer-provided care, it was hard to move to a more rational system where it was financed collectively through taxes and government spending. So, so I think that, that debate will sound very different in the months going forward. Of course, it's a calamity if people don't have health insurance when they lose their jobs. Of course, it's crazy if they can't get tested and treated when they have a disease that if they don't get treated and tested for, they're going to infect others. So I think we're we're likely to come out at a very different point on that debate.
0: I would love to pivot into peer pressure. Your latest book is Under the Influence. Putting peer pressure to work. There seems to be some general discomfort around the idea of peer pressure, and it's even viewed sometimes as a negative thing because growing up, a lot of people talk about not giving into peer pressure, making you want to do things you don't want to do, or drink alcohol, do drugs, and so forth. Before we go into how we can leverage this for our benefit for the environment, can you first share your thoughts on how peer pressure has led us to where we are today with our overconsumption, especially in raising the bar of feelings of adequacy and material enoughness.
1: My own sense of this issue really began when I was just out of college. For two years, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in a small village in Nepal. There I lived in a two-room house. It had no electricity, no running water, because the context there is so very different from the one I was used to here. In that local context, it was actually quite a nice house. It was a nicer house really than the teachers in in the village school where I taught. Most of them didn't live in as nice a house as the one I lived in. I was, of course, not ashamed to have people over. There'd be no reason to have been. Here, I live in a house that if my friends from Nepal saw it, they would be astonished. Why would anybody need such a grand house? Why so many bathrooms? And so on. But you wouldn't think that. Most of my neighbors wouldn't think that. It's just the kind of house people in my profession at my stage of life normally live live in. There are many grander houses owned by my colleagues in the house I live in. So so local context really creates a very strong sense of what it's appropriate for you to wear, what it's appropriate for you to be doing, what it's appropriate for you to own or drive that that's an incredibly powerful force it's normal it's natural you shouldn't think you're a bad person if you're if you're subject to those kinds of influences you know that context shapes every evaluation we make so if you're driving with your 6-year-old to visit her grandparents and she wants to know if you're almost there yet. If if there are 10 miles left on a 12 mile journey, you'll say, no, we're not almost there yet. We've got a long way to go. If there are those same exact 10 miles left on a 120 mile journey, you'll say, yeah, we're just about to arrive. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a totally normal thing to frame things in terms of, of the surrounding context. Is a car fast or not? Well, in 1920, if it would get to 60 miles an hour, eventually it would have seemed blindingly fast. Now it's got to get there in under five seconds or it seems sluggish. Right. So so that's normal. But what we know, therefore, is that if, if people get more money, they will usually buy something that shifts how they feel relative to the context that they're used to. So we were saying earlier that the income gains have been going mostly to the top. That has led people at the top to build bigger houses. That's what everybody does when they get more money. The people in the middle don't seem to get angry about that. They like to see footage of the the mansions. Maybe they'll be rich someday, they think. So there's no harm to the middle directly from them building those bigger houses. But then there's a group just below the top, a group that socializes with the people at the top. Maybe it's now the custom in their circle to have their daughter's wedding receptions at home. They have a ballroom. They can have an orchestra and several hundred guests at once. So now the people just below the top, they need to build bigger. There's a group just below them. They have dinner with the people just below the people just below the top. Now it's dinner parties for 18, not 12. They need a bigger dining room. And it cascades all the way down the income ladder. And as a result of that, the people in the middle are now building houses, buying houses that are 50% bigger than the ones they bought in 80, 1980 and are much more than 50% more expensive, even though the people in the middle don't have higher hourly wages now than they did then. How can they afford it? The answer is they can't. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're overextended. Well, maybe the best advice is suck it up. Don't buy a house if you can't afford it. But that that ignores how we affect one another's ability to achieve basic goals. So if you're a parent in the middle, let's suppose it's your goal to send your kid to a school of just average quality. And, And we'd think ill of you as a parent if you weren't at least that ambitious. So what must you do? Well, everywhere in the world, the better schools are located in the more expensive neighborhoods. So if you're in the middle and you want to send your kid to a a school of just average quality, if that's your aim, what you must do is buy the median priced house for your area. And that house is now 50 percent bigger and more than 50 percent more expensive than it was in 1980. So, of course, you're strapped. What are you going to do if they say don't buy? It"? No, I'm not going to send my kids to the schools with metal detectors out front where the the other students score in the 20th percentiles in reading and math. I'm gonna I'm gonna work every margin I can, multiple jobs, long hours, low savings, borrowing to the hilt to get together a down payment on a house in in the the best school district that I can afford. And that is why the middle class is strapped now. Right. It, that's The practical cost of inequality, it's driven up the cost of meeting those basic goals for people in the middle.
0: So it sounds like every time we talk about this concept of affordability, we also need to put that into the context of what is considered the norm.
1: Exactly. Yeah. There's always been an argument about whether poverty is an absolute or a relative phenomenon the answer is it's both if you if you don't have enough food and and enough heat uh, you're not going to survive at all so absolute living standards do matter and and we know that life expectancy is longer now today than it was 100 years ago precisely because we have more absolute income now than we did then we can afford the research that's extended the lifespan but inescapably a big swath of the things you feel you need is determined by what others have.
0: This really reminds me of something that I've seen people say. If someone were in the lower to middle class in the United States, people might tell them you're already among the top 10 or top 1% in the global picture. So you should feel privileged and you shouldn't complain about your circumstances. But that kind of neglects that context factor because there are places around the world in more land-based communities or in more developing countries where the norms are different. So that statement kind of is invalidated because that doesn't take into account the norms of where people are living.
1: Yeah. And as you said earlier, Kamea, 40% of people surveyed couldn't come up with $400 to meet an emergency expense. Why can't they? Because they're spending every nickel they can get their hands on to get their kids into a decent quality school. It's it's so important that you not fall behind others in, in the race to, to keep up with the essentials, what are viewed as the essentials of life and, and many of those essentials are defined in strictly relative terms. I mean, you, your daughter gets married. You don't want guests to go home thinking, Oh, so-and-so didn't appreciate what an important occasion this was. He, he served big Macs and, and didn't, didn't have any floral arrangements on display. Well, if, if you spend way less than everyone else spends, you're you're regarded properly as somebody who didn't appreciate how important the occasion was. Mm. But what that's led to is that now the average wedding in the US costs thirty six thousand dollars. And in nineteen eighty, in real in real dollar terms, adjusted for inflation, the cost was only eleven thousand dollars. Nobody thinks people are happier today because they're spending three times as much to get married. That's a total fantasy that the the, the across the board escalation in expenditure has made people happier. It hasn't. It's just shifted the bar that defines what people feel they need to do.
0: So it's really the top 1% or so that's been raising the bar and everybody else is feeling this increasing pressure to keep up. So I guess my question is, if peer pressure is largely encouraging the opposite of what we want right now, especially with the state of the planet, how do we begin to even shift the norms of the group to then change our collective outcome?
1: That's the the central thesis of my book, which is that because we know that peer influences are so powerful, we have an interest in trying to shape them. All the psychologists have been in unanimous agreement for more than a century that the most important explanation for what people do is not the kind of people they are, their traits of character or personality, but the social situations in which they find themselves. So if you're worried your daughter will become a smoker, it doesn't help you at all to know that she's a science fiction buff or that she is good in math or that she's a sports fan. None of that predicts anything about her risk. What you need to know is the proportion of her friends who smoke. And it's a huge effect. So if that number goes from 20% to 30%, she becomes 25% more likely to become or remain a smoker. There's no other effect remotely as big as that. And since the peer environment shapes us so strongly, in that case for, for bad, but in many other cases for good, we have an interest in it. It's a consequence in the aggregate of the things we do. So the smoking rate is just the number of us who choose to smoke divided by the total number of us. And yet nobody, when thinking about whether to smoke, worries that, oh, if I become a smoker, I'll make others more likely to smoke. You will make others more likely to smoke, but your own individual contribution to that effect is so small you ignore it. But it would be better if we didn't ignore it. And the magical opportunity that awaits us is that with simple steps, we could encourage people to act as if they cared about how their own individual behavior would affect the social environment.
0: So what do you think can be the potential of us utilizing peer pressure to addressing our trend in aggravating an ecological breakdown and worsening climate change and big picture issues like that.
1: Here, too, I think the the smoking example is instructive. We didn't regulate smoking until Japanese studies showed that secondhand smoke was harmful to bystanders. In fact, the damage from secondhand smoke is real, but it's very small compared to the damage from actually being a smoker well we may say it's not the government's job to protect you from harming yourself but in addition to harming yourself as a smoker you make others more likely to smoke and the damage you cause by by doing that is vastly bigger than the damage you cause by emitting secondhand smoke that might might harm others and so we didn't start taxing cigarettes until we had the excuse of secondhand smoke to do so but once we did it a few people either didn't start smoking or found it easier to quit it was in, less convenient to smoke because of bans of smoking in bars and restaurants and other places and so gradually the fact that there were fewer smokers in each peer group that made others more likely to quit in each peer group or less likely to take up smoking and without those contagion effects the the price effects and the convenience effects by themselves, wouldn't have been anywhere near enough to explain the radical decline that we've seen in smoking rates. Men were 60% likely to smoke when I was a teenager. It's now 14%. That kind of decline you wouldn't get from just raising the tax on cigarettes. We'd need to have contagion as part of the explanation there too. So it's the exact same phenomenon in the spending patterns and other behaviors that have contributed to the climate crisis so so the the huge houses the the destination weddings when i got married i'd never heard of a destination wedding now mm-hmm. my sons are going to weddings all over the world they're now expected to go to bachelor party parties in distant places if we didn't do that people would be just as happy the reason we do it is that other people are doing it too so so here's here's the simple fix and and it's it's completely painless It's that the people who have gotten the huge gains in income over the last four decades or so, five decades or so, if they were taxed at a much higher rate, they would object to that. But the only plausible reason for them to object is that they think it would make it harder for them to buy things they want. But here's the, the problem with that worry. The things they want are not the necessities in life. Obviously, nobody's got a proposal on the table that would threaten their ability to buy necessities. It's the special extras. And what are they? They're the things that are in short supply. Everybody wants them. There aren't enough of them to go around. How do you get them? You have to outbid other people like you who want them too. And if your taxes go up and if the taxes of people like you go up too, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that mm. and so the same penthouse apartments with sweeping views of the city would end up in exactly the same hands as before the tax increase so the 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 top earners could contribute the revenue needed to parry the warming threat needed to to build the surge capacity in our medical system so we'd never be again threatened by a pandemic in the way that we are now. All that could be done without demanding any painful sacrifices at all from the people whose revenues would be financing that effort. Right. That's the thing that people don't understand. And I think if they did understand, it would change our policy on this this issue in a heartbeat. If I were Michael Bloomberg and had a, a sixty billion dollars asset chest, I'd hire the animators at Pixar to make a ten minute video explaining why we could do all this without demanding painful sacrifices from anyone. And I'd run that in prime time every night until people got the, got the <laughs> message.
0: Yeah. And earlier we talked about this idea of absolute poverty and relative poverty. So it sounds like the same concept applies to wealth and the most affluent. Yeah. So there's absolute wealth and there's also relative wealth. So even by changing... And you're
1: wealthy if you have more than others.
0: Yeah. We don't have to change relative wealth by changing... Changing absolute wealth, but by changing absolute right. wealth, we can change the game for a lot of people who are just struggling to get by. And in order for us to address some of the existential crises that we really need to start addressing today,
1: you've got it exactly right in the way you just phrased it. Yeah that that's the that's the fiscal magic that's just sitting there waiting to be seized. The one reliable finding there's a there's a, a very large, very contentious literature on the determinants of human flourishing. What is it that matters for people, really, when we ask ask them to reveal how happy they are, how healthy they are, how engaged they feel? The one reliable finding from that literature, among a few others, is the most reliable finding, is that once private consumption exceeds a certain threshold, uh, one that's been long passed in the West, further increases across the board don't produce any meaningful increase in happiness or well-being at all. So if all the mansions were to double in size, the people who live in them wouldn't be any happier than before. Probably if we could measure it correctly, they'd be less happier because the bigger properties are so much more hassle to manage. Right. So we could, we could actually There's free money sitting on the table. That's that's what people don't understand and what would be so incredibly beneficial if people did understand.
0: So certainly politicians really need to tap into this as much as possible and really think about how they can kind of spark the initial changes needed to sort of shift the norms in our society. And on a strategic level for us as individuals wanting to also support building up peer pressure to get the changes that we need. Something we need to keep in mind is that attempts to explain why opponents should embrace your point of view often serve to only reinforce disagreement. So what do we need to know about that as we're trying to do what we can to leverage peer pressure for what we want?
1: It's a great point. And and we do know that the first admonition to people who want to see change happen is do no harm we know for example that when al gore would call attention to a new study showing that warming was proceeding faster than we had realized the effect of that seemed to be to to deepen the determination of climate denialists, not to take any mitigating actions against warming. It was a perverse reaction, but it's very well documented, and we need to to worry about not triggering reactions like that. And in the last chapter of my book, I survey research on what, what scholars have learned about how to have more productive conversations with people who don't agree with you in the first place. And one of the clearest messages from that research is that it's quite often counterproductive to try to explain something to somebody. Uh, They get defensive. If they don't agree with you in, in the first place, they get defensive about the point you're trying to make. They become resistant to it. Instead, if you can just listen attentively and pose a good question at the right moment, you can actually stimulate people to rethink their positions in a remarkably effective manner. So- Socrates said he can't make anyone he can't teach anyone uh, the best he can hope to do is make them think and it was of course his strategy from the beginning to ask questions uh, as a means of doing that. So so in my own experience the the most vivid illustration I ever came across of this general point was that in conversations with opponents of the Affordable Care Act, they typically liked some of the features of the act, the requirement that insurance companies sell you insurance at affordable rates, even if you had a pre-existing condition, that was a good thing. But they hated the mandate, almost all of the opponents of the Obamacare provision. And if you tried to explain to them patiently why you needed that provision or else the health insurance market would unravel, you would never get very far in that conversation. I discovered quite by accident that asking a very simple question completely cut through all of that. The question was, was this. What do you think would happen if the government required insurance companies to sell fire insurance at affordable rates, two to $300 a year, to people after their houses had already burned down. People don't seem offended to be asked that question. They think about it. It doesn't take them very long to come up with the correct answer, which is that in short order, the insurance companies would go bankrupt if you require them to do that. Because why would anybody buy fire insurance before his house had burned down if you could buy it at the same rate after it had? Mm -hmm. And so... Then it's a short step and and most people take it on their own. Hey, the the guy with pre-existing conditions, that's the the guy whose house is already burned down. In the home insurance market, that works because people don't know their house is going to burn down. In the health insurance market, people do know that they have a pre-existing condition and the insurance company knows it too. So you can't insure people like that at, at affordable rates unless others are also in the pool. So if we can find the right questions to ask, we can make progress in those conversations.
0: Yeah, I think people have a lot of reactive responses in mind already with some words that may already be triggering, like climate change, for example. So to start off by asking these questions and analogies that can get people to agree without those reactive responses first, that can help us to get closer to the real conversations that we want to have. And the final thing I'd love to get your insights on is the role of individual action. By now, a lot of our listeners know from our past guests why it's so vital for us to have systemic change to be able to realize the world that we wish for ourselves. But sometimes that can feel lofty and distant, and especially for people just getting started or with limited amounts of extra time to support those efforts, it can just feel like a lot. You argue that individual lifestyle efforts are not a distraction from the systemic changes that we need. And that is definitely really refreshing and reaffirming to hear that our little day-to-day actions aren't just wasted efforts in the bigger picture. How so? And to close off, how do you think we as individual people can best support the societal shifts and systemic changes we need from the bottom up?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. It turns out that's a point I took up only briefly in the epilogue to my book. As an economist, it was long my own position that the, the practice of conscious consumption, I don't know if listeners are familiar with the term, but it's a it's it's a term that many use to describe individual steps to reduce your carbon footprint. So eating meat less often, walking instead of driving when you can, buying a hybrid car, th- things of that ilk. Economists were often skeptical of individual steps like that because of the so-called free rider problem. Whether or not I buy a h- hybrid car, the effect on total emissions is negligible. If everyone else buys one, that's good, but then the effect will be good whether or not I buy one. Whether or not I buy one doesn't matter, and that's why most self-interest people won't do it. So so economists had long argued that we shouldn't be focused on individual steps because the only real prospect of parrying the warming threat is through robust policy action, a stiff carbon tax, massive public investment in green energy, and so on that was always my position too i've completely changed my mind about that not because i don't think we still need big policy changes of the sort described we do but because i think individual steps are a key point along the path to getting those policy changes and and one incidental point is that when you take an individual step it has a vastly bigger effect often than than the direct effect of what you do by yourself. So I think that maybe the clearest illustration of that is in solar panel ad, adoption and there the seminal study, w- which was done in the early stages of, if there was one new order that came in today, on average, within four months time, that new order would spawn a second order. Not one that would have occurred anyway, but one that would have occurred only because of that first new, new order having been witnessed by others and stimulating them to act in a similar way the second order would spawn a new order but the first one would continue to spawn another one too so at the end of 4 months you've got two installations at the end of 8 months you've got four installations at the end of a year you, so at the end of 2 years only 2 years that first installation occurring anew is responsible for a new stock of 32 new solar panel installations it's a it's and it doesn't stop there you know each of those people who installed panels probably has a brother-in-law somewhere they talked about their decision with and and now that that family is installing them too and we're seeing cont- contagion radiate radiate out in new places from from that move too it's way more efficacious than it seems to looking at only at the direct effects of our individual actions but the the real reason i changed my mind about this issue was that Taking those kinds of steps subtly changes who we are. The economists typically assume that we come into the world with well formed preferences and, and we make our decisions by consulting those. Well, we're 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 not pre wired to, to behave and, and, and care about certain things. We we may have a few appetites that are hardwired, but But many of the things we care about are things we learn to care about, and and we become the people we are in the process of what we do. This was Aristotle's point. Why do people behave honestly? Because they are worried they'll be caught and punished, but then if they repeatedly follow the rules for that reason, following the rules becomes a habit. They become, in effect, honest people, so they don't want to cheat even when they know no one's looking. Well, it's the same with taking small climate steps each each time you do something like that it subtly changes who you are you become more of a climate advocate that makes you in the end much more likely to vote for the kind of candidates who will enact carbon taxes and investments in green energy You're much more likely to give checks to their campaign committees, much more likely to knock on doors to help them get elected. And so I think individual action is, a, is an incredibly valuable and important step on the path to solving the climate crisis.
0: Hey, walk with me. We're under the same sun with oceans all around. Yet it's not, it's not how we should be. So let's bring energy and the IOT What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: The book that influenced my thinking most, probably more, more so than any other, uh, was Thomas Schelling's Motives and Macro Behavior. It's a, it's a treasure trove of interesting everyday examples of how when individuals pursue actions that seem perfectly sensible from their own individual point of view we often get outcomes that are very, very different from what we would have wanted as groups. It's an easy read. It's, it's way better than the books written by most economists. <laughs> the book I've read most recently that, that I'd recommend without hesitation to anyone is Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's a therapist's account of her own life and, and experience treating patients who come to her with complaints about how things are going.
0: Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: keep working at something you can affect. Uh, if If you're taking futile action repeatedly, and this is something I've had plenty of experience with, that's demoralizing. Find a small thing you can change and change it. And be encouraged by the fact that if you can change something small, that often ramifies into something much bigger down the path.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: I've been taking two-hour bike rides each day. I'm really very very grateful that I'm in a position to be able to do that and that they haven't advised us not to go out and do things like that uh, at this stage of the pandemic. Who who knows how long that will last, but I'm grateful to be able to do it Mm. for now.
0: What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Any upcoming projects? or
1: Cornell has just asked me to give a Zoom lecture to the university community on what the things I've studied over the decades have taught me about how we ought to be responding to the two big crises we face, which are, of course, the warming crisis and the, and the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've been working hard on that lecture. It's, it's been uh, enormously stimulating for me to try to get my thoughts together on how best to talk about it. And I'm straight away, after giving that lecture, going to try to turn that into a long-form essay that I'll... I'll try to publish so so other people can can react to it.
0: Mm, we look forward to that. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: If you look at the the long run, the arc bends toward better. It's not linear. It's it, there are many uh, backward steps along the way, but the the world today. Several auth- authors have made the point that the world today is in most meaningful ways, better than the world has ever been. At any point in the past, we face grave crises. The fact is, though, we have the tools we need to, to to deal with the threats we face. And once we've dealt with them, then it will be clear that we're in a position to move on to still better conditions of life for virtually everybody on the planet.
0: Well, to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Robert's work, you can head to the website, press.princeton.edu slash our-authors slash Frank-Robert-H. And you can also follow him on Twitter at EconNaturalist. All of this will be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Robert, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise here with us today. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Hang in there. It's a fight worth fighting. We can all make progress toward the solutions that that, that are going to make a difference for us. So, And thank you to Kamea for having me on and and getting a chance to, to talk about all this with your listeners.